Well, if we haven't met, I'm Adam. I'm Sarah's husband. <laughs> and, uh, uh, we're in the second week of our series called Bless, trying to dive in. How do we truly follow Jesus' command to love our neighbors? How do we really have uh, the blessings that God has blessed us with? We are blessed not just for ourselves, but in order to be a blessing to others. In May of this year, the Survey Center for American Life released a report. It was called The State of American Friendship, Changes, Challenges, and Loss. And it points to some data that, that indicates that friendship is a shifting reality in our culture. Here's one statistic from the report, a chart here. And the percentage of Americans who say they have a close friend, and how many? So I know there's a lot of numbers and a lot of blue on here. On 1990, on the right there, is a, they, the Gallup company did a survey in this, uh, of a similar question. And let me just point out a couple things. So in 1990, 33% of respondents said they had 10 or more close friends. When that was done in 2021, only 13% of people said they had 10 or more close friends. Then at the top, in 1990, only three people said they had no, 3% of people said they had no close friends. And in 2021, that number is 12% of respondents. Now in the middle, there's some interesting kind of jumps, mostly declines, some in the middle there are, are, are larger. But over the past 31 years, more people said they had less friends. In fact, 15% of men and 10% of women said they did not have a single close friend. Now, lots of people have lots of different theories on why this is happening. Is it our increased mobility that we would relocate more often for jobs or, or for whatever reason? Might, might be. Uh, it could be technology. Are we spending more time with screens? I found it hilarious to think that as we are streaming more episodes of Friends, we have less actual friends. Is, that, is, is technology t to blame, so to speak? Uh, could be, could be. Research also indicates that people are spending twice as much time with their children as previous generations. And so that makes it harder. <laughs> I see some, mm-hmm. Uh, I see some nods there. And that, that makes it harder to develop uh, friendships with your peers. So there's lots of people smarter than me investigating the reasons for all of these things. But I have my own theory, and that's all it is. It's just my thoughts. I think the reason that American friendship is declining is this. Insecurity. Let me tell you what I mean. Here's why I think that. In the 1950s, William Schutz was a PhD, and he was working with the military to develop assessments for high-performance teams and compatibility. In other words, if you're gonna be on a submarine, close quarters with some people, let's try and figure out how, how to assess that people can get along well, how to be compatible. And so Schutz developed the Fundamental Interpersonal Relations Orientation Behavior Instrument, or the FIRO-B for short. It's a personality profile. Schutz's theory was this, that interpersonal needs could be kind of grouped into three buckets. Got a picture for you here. Inclusion, control, and affection. That's what people need, both to give and to receive. Now, this is not a lecture about personality assessments. This is a sermon, but we're going somewhere with this, so I just want to hit a couple points here. I want to focus for our purposes on this, this, this element of inclusion that people need to receive and demonstrate. Inclusion relates to forming new relationships and associating with others. It determines the extent of contact and prominence that a person seeks. 
right? So the test also measures in these three categories kind of two components. These are the things at the bottom. When you take this test, you have an expressed score. So how much inclusion you express out in the world, how much you demonstrate, and then a wanted score, how much inclusion you desire. So there's an outward and an inward component to each of these things. So the results look like this. These are my results. You, 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 all the numbers, these won't mean a lot to you, but I scored high in every category, which I've been told is an indicator of extreme extroversion. I kind of feel like it just means I'm really needy. Okay. I'm at least needy enough to make you all look at a bunch of scores that don't mean nothing to you. Here's the point. This is my theory. When I, when I understood that there's a score for in, how much inclusion you show and how much you desire, I had an epiphany. I've worked in churches next year, it'll be 20 years. And uh, <laughs> what I've heard over and over, in many, many ways for good reason, is people that are new to youth group or to a worship service or new to whatever will say, well, nobody talked to me, right? And I do believe that as established people in a church, we do have a responsibility to include people that are new. That's, that, that is something I believe. But here was, here was the epiphany I had. The problem is to the new person, they feel like, well, no one talked to them, no one included them. The reason is because all the established people are just as insecure about talking to someone new as they are. So here's my theory. Thank you for leaving this up there. My theory is, oh, oh, bring it back, bring it back. My theory is most people have a higher wanted inclusion score than an expressed inclusion score. In other words, we all love to be invited. We all love to be included. We don't like initiating the inclusion to others as much. Does that make sense? We love to come to the party. We don't always like to invite other people because what if they say no? We're insecure. I was at the junior high this week visiting Mr. Daniels and man, I, it was like I was 12 years old again. I was like, oh, what should I wear? What if the kids laugh at me? I'm, I'm, I'm a grown person. But we go, right th- we go right back there. So I believe that a lot of us are walking around wishing to be included, but hesitant to initiate that inclusion for other people because of our insecurity. And so I have a conviction that if we're to follow Jesus' command to love our neighbor, we're gonna have to get over some of these insecurities. And the reason I wanted to tell you all this is because the data shows that we live in an increasingly lonely world and people feel isolated and as connected as we can be to the internet and to all these things, we actually may be going the opposite direction in in, in terms of our connection to other people. And so I believe the, the ground is fertile to make some easy connections with people by following a pattern Jesus set that we'll read about today. And so what I hope we'll discover as we study God's word together is that listening imparts value. In Jesus' ministry, he would travel around from place to place, teaching and doing miracles, and this attracted a big crowd. We'll find Jesus doing just exactly this in Luke chapter 18. Luke is one of the four biographies of Jesus that tell about his life and death and teachings and resurrection. And they're called the gospels, which is a word that means good news. These stories, this, this historical telling of of Jesus' life. It's good news for us, and we're gonna meet somebody whom it was definitely good news for. 
Luke 18, verses 35 through 37. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting beside the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. So Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem, the capital city for Passover, the highest Jewish holiday. Got a little visual aid for you here. Kind of on the, on the upper right is Jericho. And you can see a little prompt there that this is where Jesus healed a blind man. And if you just go down past Cyprus and Bethany and up a bit, Jerusalem is in the center. Just, just a little tool to show you kind of the road Jesus traveled. You can see all the places he kind of uh, visited throughout his time on earth, teaching and doing miracles. Jesus did a lot of teaching and healing on the road. Uh, how many of you listen to podcasts or talk radio on your commute, right? This isn't really that much of a different concept. A lot of rabbis in the first century would kind of walk and talk and they would teach as they traveled along. And this attracted a crowd and we'll see this kind of factor in in just a moment. So Luke tells us that a crowd was with Jesus and Luke tells us that Jesus' reputation preceded him because the blind man responds like this. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So this man has clearly heard of Jesus before because this is how he responds. And he calls out saying, son of David. That's a messianic descriptor. Or in other words, the, the folks at the time, the Jewish people were expecting a Messiah or a savior. And the savior would come from the line of David. So when the blind man says, son of David, rescue me, that's indicating that he's in the know on some of these things. Now that term, the son of David, occurs here in Luke 18 and only one other time in Luke in the book of Matthew, it's used 10 times because Matthew had a much stronger emphasis on David, David's lineage and on Jesus being the Messiah from David's line. Just kind of an interesting terminology used in these different gospels. That was a point of, of emphasis for Matthew in a way it wasn't for Luke. So the man calls out and folks around him rebuked him and told him to be quiet. You ever sit next to somebody in a movie theater or in a sermon and they just talk, talk a bunch? And you're like, dude, I'm, I'm trying to watch the movie. Well, that's what's going on here. People are trying to hear Jesus teaching and this dude is, is shouting. So they told him, hey, shh, shh. Anybody like being shushed, by the way? Never met a single person that likes being shushed. You know, my, my four-year-old does not, I can tell you that. <laughs> She's still young enough for me to dog her during a sermon, I guess, sorry. But no one likes being shushed. Then this guy, he's being pushed to the margins because people are like, dude, you're getting in the way but he wouldn't be denied. In verse 38, it said the man called out and the Greek word used here is ibosin, which means to shout. And then they said, dude, pipe down. And then it says he called out all the more and we lose some of the translation from the Greek. He's turning up the intensity because it's a different word used the second time. And it's the Greek word ikrazin, which means to shriek. Almost like this instinctual primal instinct. He's shrieking. Jesus, son of David. He wouldn't be denied a face-to-face -face meeting with Jesus. There was little hope for any livelihood beyond begging for someone who was disabled in the first century. People didn't even want the distraction of him making noise. But amidst the whole crowd, despite Jesus, you know, having a schedule, 
being on the road, having plenty of stuff to do, he stops and he listens to the man. Verse 40 and 41, Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? I want to see, he replied. Does this strike you as odd that Jesus asked him what he wanted? Now, I think you and I probably could have guessed what this person would have wanted. Jesus definitely could have known. Right, it says earlier in Luke 9 that Jesus could perceive the thoughts of people's hearts. Surely Jesus knew. So why did he ask? This man had been pushed to the margins of society. The crowd had tried to silence him. Jesus gave the man dignity by listening to him. Jesus wanted him to have the chance to speak for himself. When I was in youth ministry in St. Louis, we took several trips to the Dominican Republic. I remember having a conversation with the missionary there. Uh, we were in this camp in a city called Bani in the southern part of the Dominican. And there was this pit, this giant hole in the ground, on the campgrounds, with like some concrete around it. It was filled with murky water. Uh, if you've traveled in, in, in the Caribbean, you know that sometimes malaria can be a concern. This was like Disney World for mosquitoes. I mean, this was like paradise. I was like, what's the deal with that? And the missionary John said, you know, in my line of work, I see a lot of Methodist ruins. Methodist ruins. In other words, some missionary, somewhere along the line, a mission team thought, you know what this campground needs is a pool. And so it was a half-built pool in a, in a, in a, What's, what's the kinder term than third world? In a um, developing country, no plan for drainage, no plan for sanitation, but the dynamics are such that these uh, comparatively wealthy American mission teams come in and they say, well, we know what y'all need. We need some swimming pools around here. And, and the folks at the camp are, don't wanna you know, make anybody mad. So they're kind of like, oh yeah, sounds good. And then you got this half-built pool that people had the bright idea to build, but they didn't stick around enough to give the time, the manpower, or the funding to complete the project. Methodist ruins. Friends, sometimes we think we know what's best for folks, but we can hurt them in the process. So Jesus does a very simple thing. He asks this man a question. What do you want me to do for you? If you had the opportunity to tell Jesus one thing that he could do for you, what would you tell him? I think the answer to that question says something about our priorities. This man didn't say money. He didn't say revenge on all the folks that have pushed me to the side my whole life. He said, Lord, I want to see. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. And when all the people saw it, they also praised God. 
I like this. Same folks who were shushing this dude a minute ago were like, hey, all right, good for you. You know, they, they go from rebuking him to having reverence for what Jesus has done. The crowds wanted to silence the man, but Jesus listened to him. Now, the irony of me talking to you for 20 minutes about listening is not lost on me. This is a little hard to put together here. One of my favorite shows has been on ESPN for 20 years. It's called Pardon the Interruption. Pardon the Interruption. Favorite show ever. And this is where two guys yell at each other for 20 minutes. This is emblematic of a lot of sports media and a lot of news media now. It's mostly people just shouting over each other. Again, the show is called Pardon the Interruption. Friends, if we want to bless our neighbors, then one skill we can imitate from Jesus is listening. And this is in an age where a lot of folks don't feel like they have any friends at all. One way to bless someone is by giving them the dignity of listening, just like Jesus did on that road from Jericho. Last week, we talked about blessing our neighbors by beginning with prayer in this series called Bless. Each letter stands for something. So last week, we talked about beginning with prayer, lifting people up and asking God ways that we can perceive how to be a blessing to them. And now we get a little bit closer to the source and we, we invite people to let us know what it is we can do for them. Dave Ferguson, author of the book that this series is based on, Bless, he said this, this question Jesus asks tells us something profound about his character when Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus, uh, excuse me, it shows that Jesus didn't assume, by the way, if, if you get lost in your sermon, just say the word Jesus and it'll be fine. <laughs> it shows that Jesus didn't assume he knew what people needed and he didn't want you or me to assume we know what people need either. So he asked questions and listened. Now, I'm not sure I'd, I'd pound on your neighbor's door and begin with, what would you like me to do for you? But my theory is most people don't want to initiate these conversations, but most people do appreciate feeling included. And so friends, just rest in the fact that everyone is just as insecure as you are. Everybody. So I'd invite you to think about the places you live and work and play. Like, do you know your neighbor's names? What about your coworkers? Is, is it folks, random folks in random cubicles? I guess if everybody's on a Zoom call, you might know their name. What about the servers you, that serve you at restaurants? Anybody a regular? Man, there's no better feeling than just having an unsweet tea plopped in front of you when you sit down because folks know what the usual is. Can you get to know the folks that serve you at the dry cleaners, uh, at, at, at the salon, at, at the barber, whatever? Who can you introduce yourself to and just show that, that amount of care? What can we be doing to bring our neighbors or coworkers together? You know why we don't have a giant Halloween party on Halloween night? Because that's the one night all the neighbors will talk to you. We don't want you at church, we want you on your block. I don't know why I'm yelling. I'm, I'm hyped up about snick, mini Snickers bars a month and a half in advance. Who in your neighborhood or your school or your job doesn't fit the profile of the majority? Who's the person on the margin? And how can you take one step in relational proximity towards them? In February of 2020, we had finished uh, a, a big seminar here. We had about 130 people 
come to this uh, strengths event that we put on, and that's using another personality assessment from the Gallup company. Well, Gallup had changed how they administered the codes to access this test and gone to this new platform. And it was, we had folks around church calling me the IT guy because it was just, it was kind of a mess. And so I sent a somewhat, I, I, I didn't use any bad language, but I sent a strongly worded email to the Gallup company. And I received an email reply from one of Gallup's senior leaders, the global talent development architect, Dean Jones. That's a fancy title. He's like president of something, something. And I thought to myself, dude, if I would have known you was going to read it, I would have worded it differently. <laughs> but just in receiving that response from somebody high up, that communicated something to me that they really did want to listen. Just the act of listening communicated a lot to me because listening imparts value. When we listen to someone, it's, we're, we're implying that they're worth listening to. And we live in a world, friends, with plenty of noise, plenty of interruptions, and little listening. I'm convinced one of the best things we can do to show people the value they have as children of God is to follow the pattern of Jesus and bless them simply by listening. And everybody said, amen. amen.